began the message this morning, you're awake. I wish I had a picture of your faces. That was great. That was great. We ought to do that every week. <laughs> oh, gosh. Sometimes it's fun, you know. Let me tell you a story. There were two boys who were walking home from church, and they'd just heard a very strong, powerful message on the devil. And one of the boys said to the other, what do you think about all this Satan stuff? And the other boy replied, well, you know how Santa Claus turned out. It's probably just your dad. <laughs> that has absolutely nothing to do with the message this morning. I just thought it was funny. This next one has a little bit, maybe kind of, sort of, if you really twist it a little bit, has a little bit closer to the mark. There's a story of at the pearly gates there was a taxi driver and a minister waiting in line and St. Peter, you know, that's the old Catholic thing. St. Peter's there at the gates and he's letting in who he's letting in and he's not letting in who he's letting in. So St. Peter consults his list and he says to the taxi driver, he says, take this silken robe and this golden staff and enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he greets the minister who was next saying, take this cotton robe and wooden staff and enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute, says the minister. Wait a minute. That man was a taxi driver. He gets a silken robe and a golden staff. I get this cotton robe and a wooden staff. How can this be? Well, Peter said, up here we work by results. While you preached, people slept. While he drove, people prayed. <laughs> Hopefully nothing's prophetic about this story. Please don't sleep through the message today. I woke you up really good at the beginning, so... Now, the second story, here's how it kind of, sort of, relates to what I want to talk about this morning. It illustrates an ongoing challenge for believers in Christ because most of the world believes that work earns us favor with God to begin with. Most people believe that. It's something that leaders in the early church, the early Christian church, had to face as the message of God's grace available through Christ. It clashed with our innate human understanding that what we do always earns us something, positively or negatively. Now, of course, in the world, again, often that's true. If we work hard, we're often rewarded. We sometimes and often earn favor or goodwill. On the flip side of that, if we do evil things, there are usually bad consequences. But God's message of grace demonstrated in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ turned that thinking totally around. It turned it on its head completely. It is so countercultural to our human way of thinking that Christianity is really the only major world religion where grace is a central theme. And if you've been paying attention this morning, you see that grace is a central theme. It was in all of the worship songs. It was even in the verse that Art brought at the very beginning, and I'm going to read that later as part of this message. Uh, I thought that uh, the worship time sounded like a radio station, all grace, all the time. It was good. It was good. But think about it. Every other religion, even including Judaism, on which our faith is founded, is about works. It's about what you do to earn God's approval. It's all about rules and regulations and laws, and what you do makes all the difference. So what's the difference between Christianity and pretty much every other major religion? Even pretty much every other major philosophical system, 
including secular philosophies, I would say it's grace. It's grace embodied in Jesus. In Islam, for example, your standing with God here and in eternity is completely and exclusively tied to how you live, that is, what you do. In most Eastern religions, you have to earn your way to a higher state of consciousness. In some religions, you earn your way up from lower forms of life because you're either reincarnated upward or downward. Again, depending on what you do. Now, how many of us think about this? How many of us would? If, favor of, uh, if the favor of God was truly based on merit, we would end up being reincarnated as worms, right? Even in secular belief systems, such as naturalism, Darwinism, which are really more religious than any proponents would care to admit, it's survival of the fittest, just like in the animal kingdom. You're either predator or you're prey. And depending on where you are on the predatory scale, you're probably both. So the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these religions offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing that God's love is unconditional because we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa! That's the standard we have to live up to. And because we continually fail to be perfect, we need God's perfection given to us. That's what happens when we trust in Jesus, who is, in fact, perfect. He bears our sins, he bears our imperfections, and he clothes us with his perfection. That's grace, folks. That's grace. The word grace with many different nuances, but essentially one central meaning is found in dozens of contexts in our New Testament. And the Word of God tells us that Jesus is the embodiment of grace, even as he is the Word made flesh. We see in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word, that is Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth, right? So he's full of grace. And then in verse 16, we read, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Isn't that a great phrase? Grace upon grace. In other words, more and more, a constant supply. So we need his grace for salvation. We need his grace for sanctification. We need his grace for daily living. For everything we experience, we need his grace. What a wonderful reality of our life in Christ. There is grace upon grace. Just as his mercies are new every morning, so is his grace. We have fresh opportunities to draw on the grace of God daily, hourly, even minute by minute for all of our spiritual needs, all of our material needs, all of our emotional needs. Yet we still see this tendency in all of us, if we're honest with ourselves at least, to rely on ourselves. We have this pride in ourselves that seems to think that we can earn or merit anything. Yet Scripture is clear, and it starts with the salvation of our souls, but it doesn't end there. Grace doesn't end with our salvation. It's clear that we cannot earn favor with God by what we do. This is the classic passage 
on this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, referring to the grace and the faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What's a gift? It's grace, right? Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. We have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves, of our own doing, when it comes to our salvation. It's a gift. But it doesn't end there with salvation. We can still, as believers in Christ, somehow, sometimes we do, slip into the mindset, slip backwards into the mindset that God's love for us after we're in Christ somehow depends on what we do. But even the good works that we do are empowered by His Holy Spirit living inside each believer. You read, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, For it is God who works in you, what? Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's God working in us that enables us to do the good things that God wants us to do to obey Him. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we read this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Has granted to us. There is the idea of giving. It's a gift of grace, right? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So granted or given to us. That's His grace working in us. That's His grace working through us as well. Now, a quick sidebar here, because grace is a dangerous thing to preach about. And it's because we have this idea sometimes that grace means license. What we do, how we live our lives, is not unimportant, okay? It's not unimportant. The Apostle Paul addressed that idea in the strongest terms possible in Romans 6, starting with verses 1 and 2, talking about the grace of God, how he saves us. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then uh, jumping down to verse 15 through 18 of Romans 6, we read this. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, he says, by no means. In other words, no way, no how. That's not what I'm talking about here. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So yes, folks, grace abounds. Grace abounds. Yes, our faith is a faith of grace upon grace. However, please do not hear anything said this morning as a license to sin. That grace upon grace doesn't give us the freedom to sin. Rather, just the opposite. It frees us from slavery to sin. And it enables us to live for Him. Nevertheless, we can see how our very natural, and I believe our fallen tendency, to look to merited rather than unmerited favor can undermine the gospel. The gospel that we live and the gospel that we teach and preach and share with others. Paul certainly believed it would. The Apostle Paul had words of rebuke, especially for the Galatian church, just as strong as the words of rebuke that Jesus himself had for the Pharisees. When we try to keep 
the law or laws or rules or regulations as a means, key word there, as a means, a way to earn God's favor, to earn his love. We're relying on things that Paul called weak and worthless or weak and miserable. When we live that way, we are in reality relying on what Paul said was a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Why? Because gospel means good news. And how can it be good news for us to be right back where mankind was before Jesus came? How can it be good news for us to be dependent on weak and worthless rules to save us or to change us into his image? How can it be good news to depend on what Paul called weak and miserable principles to make us more and more like Jesus, to sanctify us? We can't depend on those things, folks. We're unable to. That's the whole message of the gospel. We're unable to, so Jesus did it for us. I often speak with brothers or sisters in Christ who have set up certain standards of behavior for themselves. Now, let me be very quick to say that the standards that they've set up usually are not necessarily bad standards. They're good things. I want to reemphasize that when we're talking about grace versus law, we're not talking about lawlessness. We're not talking about no godly standards of life or conduct. Instead, we're thinking about what it means to depend on our ability to live up to those standards as our means of acceptance before God. Now, for these people that I've talked with about this general theme, these standards were things that were designed, the standards they'd set up for themselves, the, the habits that they'd built, we call them often the spiritual disciplines. Those are all good things. They were designed to nurture their faith in the Lord. They were disciplines that many of us strive to maintain. And again, they're good things because they can help us in our walk of faith. And again, they're good things in that sense, okay? However, these individuals, when they failed in even little ways to maintain these disciplines, sometimes they fell into the weak and worthless things trap. That happens. Because they immediately felt condemned. I can't live up to this. I can't do this. I'm not very good at it. I missed my quiet time this morning. I didn't pray. I kicked the cat this morning. Whatever the case may be. They fell into that weak and worthless things trap and they believed even unconsciously that they had somehow forfeited or undermined their relationship with God. I didn't live up to the standards I set for myself. That would sometimes lead to a downward slide away from God. Throwing up their hands. I just can't do this. I'm not going to do this. Because instead of responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is what the bad feeling you get is supposed to be, it's supposed to be conviction and not condemnation, to get back on the straight and narrow path and do what you know you need to do, they responded to the enemy's condemnation, which said they'd blown it. And they'd blown it so badly there's no coming back, so you may as well not even try. It's clear, as author Brian Chappelle writes, that our hearts often echo guilt more loudly than grace. Paul says Jesus intercedes for us at God's right hand now. Right now, folks, right now, he intercedes for us. The apostle uses the present tense of the Greek word, which speaks of action that continues to express this work of Christ. Jesus never stops interceding for us. There's only one reason Jesus would stay at God's right hand to keep asking for our forgiveness today. He knows we need forgiveness today. Jesus intercedes in the present tense because we sin in the present tense. 
as I pondered the marvel, the absolute marvel of God's grace, and I consider the gospel of Jesus Christ really is a gospel of grace. I thought about the many Christians, sometimes including myself, who can easily, easily slip into a performance mentality of earning God's favor, a performance mentality rather than a gratitude mentality, doing godly things in thanksgiving for what God has done for us, not because we want to earn his favor in some way. And then I remembered some of Paul's strong words in Galatians, as well as other passages of Scripture, where we see a clear contrast between the true gospel, which is so clearly a gospel of grace, and the false gospel that he confronted in Galatia and in other places. We read this battle that Paul, the ongoing battle that Paul had with churches that were slipping back into law and were uh, abandoning grace. It's a message of law or works. I want to focus on six key passages this morning. Each one of these passages illustrates important principles about this disparity between law and grace. So let me review them briefly before we take a look at each of them individually. The first one is found in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and that's where Paul tells us that this so-called gospel that the Galatians had slipped into due to the preaching of the Judaizers was a corrupted gospel. It was a different gospel. It was really no gospel at all. It was not news. It was the same old, same old, and it certainly wasn't good. The second passage we're going to look at is found in Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 21 and carrying over into chapter 3, verse 5. The theme there is that if we fall back into trying to earn our way to heaven or to earn God's favor, then Christ died for nothing. His death was pointless. The third passage in Galatians chapter 3 still, verses 10 and 11, again shows how strongly Paul rejected this works approach to salvation. He said if we try to get to heaven this way, we're under a curse. Are you getting a, are you getting a trend here? Paul is rejecting this very strongly with very strong language. The fourth passage is in also Galatians 3, verses 22 and 23, where Paul compares being shut up under sin without Christ and being caught in a law-keeping approach to God. And he says they're both like slavery. They're both like slavery. They're both like prison. And the fifth verse is in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul calls the rules we keep, and we've already referred to this, weak and worthless, or weak and miserable principles. Last but not least, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, about our incredible freedom in Christ because of his grace. So first let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And here's what Paul writes here to the Galatians. Again, very strong words. I am astonished. You know what astonished means, right? Really? I can't believe it. I am astonished, Paul said, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So let's look at some of those strong words. Astonished. He was shocked. He couldn't believe it. Okay? And then he says, it's a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's not the gospel. It's not what I preached. It's something completely different. 
And then he says they're trying to pervert the gospel. You know what it means to pervert? You're turning it around. You're turning it into something that it isn't. In his letter to the churches that make up the epistles of our Bibles today, you may have noticed that Paul almost always offers thanks and expressions of praise to God, right? And that's often followed by expressions of appreciation to the people in the church to which he was writing. Now, you'll also notice something here if we were to go back to the beginning, and you see he does offer thanks to God at the beginning, but he doesn't offer these expressions of appreciation to the Galatian church. Why? Well, I think the fact that Paul follows his expressions of praise to God with these verses we just read, astonished, not the same gospel, shocked that you would do this, you're perverting the gospel. I think it makes the absence of his expression of these these greetings to the Galatians, appreciation, I think it makes it kind of conspicuous. Why? Why did he not do that? He wrote that he was astonished. He was amazed that so quickly after he'd left them. So this happened a very short time after Paul had already been there. He'd seen people saved. He'd seen them accept the gospel of grace. And now they're abandoning that. They'd accepted the true gospel of God's grace in Christ. But then they'd fallen for this perversion of the gospel that the Judaizers had brought. They had turned away from the truth. And Paul knew And that's why he used this very strong language. This was serious stuff. This was serious stuff. He couldn't let this... This is not one of those agree-to-disagree things. We can't just say, okay, well, you think that, and I think this, and that's probably okay because they're both kind of true. No, it was the complete opposite of that. One commentary noted that the departure was not simply from a system of theology, but from God himself, the one who had called them by the grace of Christ, which, of course, is the dominant theme of the epistle of Galatians. In exchange, they were embracing a different gospel, one that was false. Paul insisted that a gospel of legalism, which adds work to faith, is not the same kind of gospel that he preached and by which they were saved. It was actually an attempt to pervert the gospel of Christ. So what the Judaizers were teaching, most of you know this, but let's just say you don't, these Gentile believers in Galatia had to follow Jewish rules and customs in order to be saved. In other words, they had to go back to what they were abandoning, and they were Gentiles, right? They were Gentiles, so they had to go back and be Jews to come to Christ. And Paul said no. The Judaizers' message completely undermined what Paul had taught. They sabotaged, they destroyed the Galatians' real understanding that salvation was a gift and it wasn't a reward for anything that we can do. They essentially denied that Jesus' work on the cross was enough to save us. In other words, okay, that's cool. Jesus, he went to the cross, he paid for our sins, but we've got to do this extra stuff too. You see how that perverts the gospel. He said it wasn't just a different gospel, but it was no gospel at all. Again, because gospel means good news. And how's that good news? It was old news. It was, a same, it was the same system of bondage that they had to law before Jesus came. The fact that God accepts us when we receive the gift of salvation through Christ is really good news, folks. It's really good news. Matthew Henry wrote of this passage, all other gospels than that of the grace of Christ, whether more flattering to self-righteous pride or more favorable to worldly lusts, 
are devices of Satan. There's some strong language too. Devices of Satan. And while we declare that to reject moral law as a rule of life tends to dishonor Christ and destroy true religion, we must also declare that all dependence, and that's a key word, that's why I underlined it there, all dependence for justification on good works, whether real or supposed, is as fatal to those who persist in it. While we are zealous for good works, let us be careful not to put them in the place of Christ's righteousness. If we wonder at all how seriously, I don't know how we could after that first passage we read, but if we wonder at all how seriously Paul took this assault on the gospel, let's move to the next passage, which is in Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 21 and continuing into chapter 3. Here Paul writes, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And then he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's deceived you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? This is Paul's words to the Galatians in verse 21. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What an amazing thing to consider. To insist that our standing before God in eternity depends on how well we obey rules and regulation is to nullify, it's to make worthless the grace of God revealed by the death of Jesus on the cross. That's why he was shocked. That's why he was astonished that they were rejecting this. Christians today are still in danger of acting as if Christ died for nothing. Think about it. While we Christians would likely not try to live by the Jewish ceremonial laws, that would be kind of tough, we have a very natural tendency to replace Jewish legalism with our own kind of Christian legalism. When we do that, we give people extra laws to obey. Philip Yancey wrote this. He said, where legalism takes root, the prickly thorns of extremism eventually branch out. Legalism is a subtle danger because no one thinks of himself as a legalist. Anybody here think of yourself as a legalist? I didn't think so, and I didn't think you'd admit it even if you did. My own rules seem necessary. Other people's rules seem excessively strict. Haven't we seen that? If we could be saved by being good, then Christ did not have to die. If you ask most people, at least outside the church and sometimes even in churches, what they have to do to get to heaven... What did they reply? Be a good person, right? I'm a good person. All I have to do is be a good person. Do good stuff, not do bad stuff. But in response to this idea, Paul said in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians. You foolish Galatians. Does he say to us, you foolish Tulsans, Broken Arrowans, Bixbians, whatever we are. Hmm? Pretty strong language. I think he was trying to get their attention, don't you? Is that a way you get somebody's attention? By calling them fools? You might make them mad, but you sure get their attention. No question about it. He was telling the Galatians that to embrace a doctrine 
which essentially rendered Jesus' death on the cross unnecessary was totally irrational. It was foolish. And then as he goes on in this passage, he asks them some questions to demonstrate convincingly that trusting in Jesus' sacrifice and that alone is God's good news of salvation, as well as the way that he uses to change us. His grace is what he uses to change us, sanctify us after we are justified before God. In chapter 3, verse 2, he asks, how did the Galatians receive the Spirit? Now, of course, this was a rhetorical question, right? Because he asked when they were converted, how did this happen? Was it by faith or by works? Well, again, a rhetorical question has an obvious answer, right? It was by faith. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, he asks them how God is sanctifying them or how is he working in their lives to change them after their initial salvation. And assuming that the Galatians would answer first the rhetorical question that they were saved by faith, he asked them if they're foolish enough to think that somehow they shouldn't continue to operate in the same way. Why would God have them begin their life of faith one way, by faith through his grace, right? And then go back to an old, tried, tired, failed way to change them into his image. There was and is no provision under the law to sanctify, that is to change us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ, any more than there is a provision under the law to justify. So you know what Paul was saying here? When you've come so far forward, why would you start stepping backwards? You've moved along. Why do you want to back up? People still feel insecure in their faith. I know people that do. They feel insecure in their faith. Why is that? Because faith alone seems too easy. You mean I just got to believe? It seems too easy. To this day, people still try to get closer to God by following rules, as we noted earlier in our comparison of world religions and philosophies to the grace that Christianity brings. Christians ought to know better. But even we tend to slip back into this performance mentality before God still try to get closer to God by following rules. And again, there are certain disciplines, Bible study, prayer, and service to the Lord and fellowship with each other. They do help us grow, okay? They're good things to do. And so I think this is the third time I've offered this little caveat to make sure that you don't think that it doesn't matter what we do. But nevertheless, these things must not take the place of the grace of God in us and become ends in and of themselves. That's the key thing here. Philip Yancey wrote, by instinct, I feel I must do something in order to be accepted. Grace sounds a startling note of contradiction, of liberation, and every day I must pray anew for ability to hear its message. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. That leads us to our next passage which is in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. It says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Again, very strong words. A curse is a pretty strong thing. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. What this means is that if your identity is in the works of the law. If you're the one who lives by the works of the law, or as the NIV that I just read says, relies on observing the law, you're under a curse. 
If that's what you're relying on for your justification, for your sanctification, what you do, you're under a curse, just as the Jews were in the Old Testament. And he quotes here Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, to prove his point in verse 10. The idea is that even when we break one commandment, it is spiritually fatal. That's the message. That's the message of the Old Testament. One commandment. One little commandment. Doesn't even have to be the big ones, right? It says we must continue to do everything written. So breaking even one commandment brings a person under condemnation. Well, guess what, folks? Everyone has broken the commandments pretty much daily. Pretty much daily. Everyone stands condemned, and the law in and of itself can do nothing to reverse the condemnation. But thanks be to God, Jesus took that curse of the law on himself when he hung on the cross. That gives us the opportunity to be freed from the curse. So in this passage, Paul says if you're relying on the works of the law, that's who you are. That's your identity. You're a law keeper. You're not a grace receiver. You're choosing to rely on how well you can keep the rules rather than living in the gift of salvation that God offers us in Jesus. Now, I don't know about you folks, but relying on my good works to save me and change me sounds a lot more confining and let alone difficult than simple trust in what Jesus has already done for us. That brings us to our next passage in Galatians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. But Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Again, get the strong language here, prisoner, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Here we see Paul's picture of two kinds of prison. We're prisoners of sin before we know Jesus, is what he says. Like prison does, sin owns us. It controls us. It confines us. It restricts our movements. It tells us where we can go and what we can do and what we can't do. In the same way, as Paul said in verse 23 here, before God's way of faith in Jesus Christ came to pardon us, we were held in a prison of law too. Just like the prison of sin, law can own us. It can control us. It can confine and restrict our movements. It tells us where we can go and what we can do. Now, again, that doesn't mean the law was a bad thing. Paul's pretty clear about that too. He says that before the law came, or before faith came, the law had a purpose. God gave both the law and promises, but for different purposes. And it was not the purpose of the law to bring us eternal life. So theoretically, if you think about it, and maybe you've thought about this before, salvation could have come by the law if, big if, if people were actually capable of keeping it perfectly. But we know they couldn't. We know we can't. By recognizing that while the law could not justify or give life, the law did prepare the way for the gospel. So what part did the law play 
it declared and revealed that the whole world was a prisoner of sin. And we knew that from the law. Matthew Henry writes, the law did not teach a living, saving knowledge, but by its rites and ceremonies, especially by its sacrifices, it pointed to Christ that they might be justified by faith. Paul's point in calling the law a prison here is not to downplay its role, but to tell us that in Jesus, we've been released from that prison. Glory to God. If you've been released from prison, why would you want to go live there again? That leads us to our next point in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. But now you know that God, I'm sorry, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? So that he's still using the prison metaphor and the slavery metaphor, right? You want to be enslaved by them. But we see the weak and miserable principles. Those law, it couldn't justify, folks. It couldn't get us there. Paul's using pretty strong language again, weak and miserable principles. Or the New American Standard says weak and worthless elemental things. And the King James says weak and beggarly elements. I like that, beggarly elements. Paul's trying to be certain that the Galatians really understand what's going on here. He wants to be sure that they grasp the futility, the complete and utter futility of what they're doing by returning to the law as a way to gain God's favor. Did they understand that they'd be going back to a state of religious slavery? Was this what they really wanted? Hey, I want you to be fully informed here. If this is what you do, this is where you're going. If so, why would they be attracted to a system that was weak? It was weak because it couldn't justify. It was weak because it couldn't give us grace for godly living. And that brings us to our final point. Perhaps it should seem obvious but Paul felt the need to say it, so apparently it's not as obvious to all of us as we think. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, and that was the work that the Judaizers were encouraging the Galatians to do, Christ will be of no value to you. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Turning back to the law ruins grace. It again burdens us with this yoke of slavery. As Paul said, slavery to law and slavery to sin. It makes Jesus of no value at all to us. Jesus died to set us free from sin and to free us from the long list of laws and regulations as a path, as a means again, to his favor. Now, of course, we must always remember that in this freedom, we're not free to do whatever we want, because that would just lead us back into slavery to our selfish desires, to sin. That's something Jesus also 
freed us from. We trade the slavery of the law for the slavery to sin, but thanks to what Jesus freely did for us, we're free and able to do what we couldn't possibly have done before we received the Holy Spirit when we came to Christ. We can live unselfishly. We can live godly lives. We can do good works. So when we say we're free and we use that as an excuse to get our own way or to indulge our own desires, we're just falling back into sin. In addition to how turning to the law ruins grace, it creates a new obligation. If we rely on the law or any laws, we're just required then to obey the whole law. If we depend on it for our justification or our sanctification, it's all or nothing. That's what Paul's telling the Galatians here. You got to go one way, you got to choose. You can go one way or the other. So that's what we're choosing. We're choosing the way of rules or we're choosing the way of grace. We can't have it both ways and be true to Scripture, true to the only true gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin with impunity. Just as much as He set us free from the law, He sets us free from sin. It's for freedom from both that Christ has set us free. That's why there's no license to sin implied in the freedom that God gave us in Christ. So let's think about this this morning. Since we have an either-or choice, let's think about this. Are we going to live by rules? Are we going to impose our rules on others for the express purpose of hoping to gain God's favor? Do we pervert the freedom we have from law and do things that are just as clearly described in uh, Scripture as sin? Those are the two kinds of slavery. Or are we going to live in his grace? Are we going to respond in gratitude? Are the good works we do going to be a response to the good saving work that Jesus did for us on the cross? Let's not be an either extreme when it comes to the grace of God. Let's accept this grace as the freeing, empowering, liberating gift that God intended it to be. Sorrow for sin that makes us doubt we are God's is in fact the evidence that we are God's. Did you ever think about that? A lot of times people are sorry about their sin and they wonder if they really belong to the Lord. But when your sorrow for sin is evident, that's evidence that you do care, right? Were we not his, our sorrow would be selfish, self-centered and even hostile toward God when we fully comprehend that his care for us is fixed and cannot be shaken. Let me say that again. His care for us is fixed. It's fixed, and it cannot be shaken. Then we serve God out of gratitude rather than guilt. We've talked about this before. Guilt is a poor motivator. Guilt just weighs you down. Gratitude is a good motivator. Our effectiveness in kingdom service then increases because we serve him without burdensome blame or paralyzing fear from which we have been set free. We stop questioning whether we love God rightly and begin rejoicing that he loves us eternally. The joy of the Lord becomes our strength. The service of the Lord becomes our delight as we exult in the wonder that he holds us despite our weakness. This is a tremendous truth, folks. I hope that we can grab on to this today. I hope we can uh, internalize this today in a way that makes a difference in how we live our lives. Let me close with this passage of Scripture. 
from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are awed by your amazing grace. We are amazed, Father. We are even astonished, Lord, as Paul said, but we're astonished for a different reason. We're astonished that you loved us so much that you paid the penalty for our sin. Father, we're astonished. We're amazed. We are awed by the reality that you took the penalty for our sin and you freed us from the curse of the law, Father God, so that it's not now about obeying laws. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about righteous living before you out of gratitude for what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Father, we thank you for the reality that you give grace upon grace. You give us grace to save us. You give us grace to change us, sanctify us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ day by day. You give us grace to face the challenges that you give us in our lives. Father, help us to access, to enjoy, to appreciate, to be grateful for that grace, Father, and to live in it and walk in it all the days of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.